This morning at 0300, we launched Operation Desert Storm. Now, you must be the thunder and lightning of Desert Storm. That is right. Welcome back to Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm. We're playing music that was popular in 1991. At the time, it wasn't one of my favorites. Nirvana smells like teen spirit, but there was a lot of teenagers in the desert 30 years ago, 1991, February. And then we brought a lot of guns, to be perfectly honest about it. Uh, On this particular episode, I want to talk about what everyday life was like two two episodes ago talked about that rather unexpected cruise into the coastal Saudi Arabian city of Kafji that allowed me to experience the war up close and personal. But to be perfectly honest, the overwhelming majority of Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm for me and probably for most people was was really boredom. We were really so very bored all of the time. And so I wanted to take you through bit of a typical day, if, if there can be such a thing, when you're on the business end of a war uh, 30 years ago. But for where we were in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, I don't remember how many scud attacks we actually endured. They were never much fun because there was always that underlying concern about as Saddam Hussein gets more desperate, is he finally going to you know, put a chemical warhead on one of those Scud missiles, and you don't have to be very accurate with chemical weapons for them to do a lot of damage. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, from the president right on down to the enlisted soldier, it was the only thing that really gave any of us reason to be concerned because the Scuds by themselves were not very accurate. We had far more false alarms about incoming Scud missiles than the ones that were actually launched into Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Um, but as we're going to find out in a couple episodes, you don't you don't have to be good sometimes. Sometimes you just have to be lucky and terrible, terrible things can happen. But that's coming up. We've only got about four or five episodes left. It's hard to believe that we started this journey back in August of 2020. And as I'm recording here on the 18th of February, looking outside my window, at the snow coming down in South Texas, it, you just just when you thought COVID-19 couldn't get any more surreal, and if you're listening to this many, many years in the future, here in Texas, circa February 19, no, excuse me, 2021, you would not know whether you are in New Braunfels, Texas, Republic thereof, or in Anchorage, Alaska. It's just been a weird year, but then 30 years ago. It was weird to be in the desert. I mentioned that I had mail call during that time. I got my first bank statement while I was over there during this time. But I wanted to talk about what it was like uh, to be there. We're in Escon Village. As I mentioned in a previous episode, I thought we'd be sleeping in tents in the desert somewhere. No big deal. I was an infantry soldier. I could live anywhere. So when we ended up in this place called Escon Village, which was basically – a massive apartment complex. I've got a picture that kind of shows you just how big this place was. It it really turned into a pretty decent place to to be billeted during the war. And so, as I mentioned, my my job when I was what we call in garrison, I was one of the few people they trusted with an M16. I was either up on the roof or at the front door. We had to provide security for our own buildings. The Saudis did not do 
any kind of blue-collar work, but we had all kinds of foreign contractors uh, inside the wire, if you will, doing you know food preparation and delivering things. And I'm sure they'd all been vetted at the front gate, but you never knew. We had people from parts of you know the, of the Arabic world that were not crazy about you know Westerners and Christians, uh, Judeo-Christians being in the home of Islam. So you had to be careful. There was always a concern about what we call today terrorism. I don't know what we referred to it back then. And so uh, my typical guard duty was either from 12 midnight to 6 in the morning, which was my favorite as somebody who never required a lot of sleep, or from 6 in the morning to 12 noon, which for whatever, re- for whatever reason felt like 15 hours versus 6. Up on the roof late at night, I, I enjoyed that, to be perfectly candid. I had a lot of time to think. Um, I stayed as sharp as I could. I uh, I used to sort of hum entire albums in my head. I once time tried to hum through every single Rush the Canadian Trio, my favorite band of all time, all of their albums, and uh, it, it does pass the time. Uh, we did not have cell phones. And like I said, when I was on guard duty, I took it very, very seriously. On a typical day when my guard shift ended at 6 a.m. in the morning, I would come down and I would go, I would, you know, check out and make sure my relief showed up. And then I would go to breakfast. And I loved this. I loved having that time to myself. And we did not have dining facilities there near where we were living. We had to walk to what we called in the Army the mess hall. It was a good walk. I remember it being at least a mile and a half away. And I enjoyed that walk in the morning. You you met people from all over the United States. You met soldiers from all over the coalition. You, know, you saw all these uniforms, and you were always walking up to people and asking them where they were from it was it was sort of like being in that Star Wars bar scene where you're just people who are, are everywhere there from everywhere in Escon Village at the time uh, I was already uh, I, I told you I grew up kind of a war junkie World War II in Vietnam were particular areas of interest of mine but when I'd been in the regular army one day one evening in the field uh, two guys one from Michigan and one from Florida so one Union guy and one Confederate guy. We're having the most detailed discussion about the Battle of Shiloh tactics and who was commanding this cavalry regiment. And, and it did two things. It, it reminded me that the guys in the infantry and in the enlisted army in the late 80s were not dummies. These were very, very intelligent people that I served with, and I wanted to be as informed about the Civil War as they were. I took it upon myself to read every single book that I could get my hands on about the Civil War, and of course I, I watched that you know landmark PBS Ken Burns series, The Civil War, and so I had one of the featured commentators on that series was a guy named Shelby Foote, who wrote a three-piece anthology, a three-part anthology about the Civil War. And I was reading the third part, Red River to Appomattox. And I'm not kidding. This book was over 600 pages long, and I was convinced would stop a bullet. I kept it in my my, my chest. I kept it in my chest, <laughs> strapped to my chest when I was on guard duty in case anybody was aiming center mass at me. We had heard the Kevlar helmet would stop the 7.62 caliber round, and I, I was hoping, if nothing else, that that book would slow down around if someone had me uh, pegged uh, center mass, and I would take it with me 
to read during breakfast. And people would come over all the time and make cracks about, wow, you know, you, are you going to have time to read that? And, and I didn't. I did not finish that book during the war because the war ended so very quickly. So I would go over there and I would, I would eat breakfast. And because I didn't have to hurry back, I, a lot of times I would be the only guy left in the mess hall. And I became very good friends with the guys in the back that were doing all the cooking. I don't know why they just happened to all be black. And they had a couple of, I guess, Moroccan or I don't know where they came from or Arab um, contractors as helpers. There's a picture there uh, in the episode description of, uh, of uh, two of those people. And so I enjoy that. I would just sit there sipping coffee, reading my book. And I, like I said, I, I got friendly with the people there. Sometimes they would make me special omelets. I, I loved what we used to call SOS. I can't tell you what the first S stood for. It's something on a shingle, but that's not the word we used. I loved that, uh, the gravy over biscuits. And so I, I enjoyed hanging out in the mess hall. Now, for, for lunch, uh, the, the mess hall there was closed at lunch. If you wanted to eat lunch, you had to come back to where we were billing. And we got these box lunches. I don't even know where they came from. To this very day, I don't know where they came from. They would drop off this huge cardboard box full of these little white boxes, and there would be a sandwich inside. There would be some cookies, some chips, stuff that I didn't recognize. Uh, they came with like a Pepsi. I've got a picture of this weird little Pepsi can. It was sort of a little bit smaller than the typical can of soda that you get in the United States, yet had about 6,000% more sugar in it. I was convinced it was some secret plot by, you know, the Saudi Arabians to make sure that all of the Americans would die of diabetes in their later years. And so I preferred the bottled water. We had bottled water everywhere. There is a picture. I believe this is actually Mike Alonzo's bunk. I told you when we first got there, we got issued these gaudy foam mattresses and bed frames. But that, that picture is just a perfect representation of what was ours while we were there. We had a bunk and a laundry bag. I did my laundry by putting on my clothes and going in the shower. And I would, I would, we got some care packages with this uh, shampoo called Rave. I can't smell that shampoo now without just being immediately transported back to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. So I would, I would basically take a shower with my clothes on, and then you know I wouldn't take my clothes off, and I would stomp on them at the bottom of the shower to sort of rinse them out. And of course, in the dry Saudi air, you'd put them over the, the balcony or over the ledge or down on a wall outside, and they would be dry inside of 30 minutes. Uh, and so I remember the box lunches very well. I think Mike and all those guys will remember the box lunches very well. But like I said, most of all, we were just bored. Uh, in in a, another episode, I talked about how I sent my parents that postcard uh, right the night after the war started. As an aside, uh, here it's uh, February 2021, Rush Limbaugh just passed away. Uh, when I got home, my parents gave me that postcard back as sort of a memento, and I kept it on my office desk for many years. And one day during Rush's show, he mentioned, I'm at a super secret location. And I thought, man, I wonder if he's at the Clear Channel headquarters, which were in San Antonio, Texas. They, they later became iHeartRadio. And they were in San Antonio, Texas, just I'm not 200 yards away from my office. And after the show ended, I just whoop, took the turnaround on Interstate 10, went over to Clear Channel, and sure enough, there was a big limo or town car there and he walked out and I grabbed the only thing I could think of and that was the that postcard and I, it has his signature on it I've got it right here in a little plastic Ziploc bag I'm going to take it out for just a second and 
in that postcard, at the very end of it, I say to my I, I say to my parents, please send batteries to a and a Nerf basketball hoop about five dollars at any toy store. I love you all. More later, love Jason. What well, well, my parents sent me was, and it wasn't a Nerf. It was sort of a knockoff basketball. Uh, Nerf-like with a foam ball and a little rim, and we, we taped it up on the wall. And just to show you how bored everybody was, I can remember one night we had, we must have had 40 guys lined up down the hallway waiting for their turn to play Nerf basketball. You couldn't bounce the foam ball, so we had all these rules. You had to pass it off the ceiling or off the wall, and I have to tell you, it was a lot of fun. And of course, uh, there's a picture there that Mike sent me, Mike Alonzo sent me, and we've got a thing on there. We called it Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood in deference, since we were all San Antonio Spurs fans, to number 50, the Admiral David Robinson, who I have a long history with, if you'll permit me just a minute to turn back the time machine to 1987. I'm on my way to Panama for the first time, and so you have to go get this battery of physicals and inoculations and stuff. Then I went over to what we call the Troop Medical Clinic. And as infantry soldiers, we looked down on everybody who was not an infantry soldier, people we called pogues, people other than grunts, the, the accountants and the cooks and the guys that worked at the clinic. We considered them, gosh, they were, they were pretend soldiers. They were paper soldiers and things like that. Well, I went over there, and they had to take blood. And the guy's taking my blood, and I'm looking down, and he goes, you know, you shouldn't look at that. Sometimes if you look at it, people get a little faint. I'm like, hey, man, I'm in the infantry. I can handle anything. He took the, the needle out. In those days, you flexed your arm to kind of stop the flow of blood. I stood up and went down like a tree struck by lightning, passed out cold. When I came to, my face was lying on the Sports Illustrated that had David Robinson on the cover. And to try to save face, I looked up at the guy who was staring at me like I told you so. And I said, wow, I hope the Spurs get this guy trying to make a joke. And of course, the Spurs did get David Robinson. And so we had this basketball goal and we found some kind of pad to put up on the wall because obviously the, the basket doesn't, you know, project much from the wall. So if you tried to dunk, your face would go smashing into the wall. So we had a thing that said no dunking, not because we cared about other people's faces, but because we didn't want the, the rim to get ruined. And so we, we would just sit there playing basketball all the time. I spoke to my friend Greg Wernett from Michigan, and he was on his way to play racquetball. That experience of playing basketball in that room, passing the ball off the wall and off the ceiling, I actually had this idea for a new type of basketball game. You played in a racquetball court with a smaller ball and a lower rim where you could pass the ball off the walls and stuff like that. We called it wall ball, and it, it sounded like such a great idea. I had a version of that in a garage one time. I've got a picture of that too. But anyway, we were just also very, very bored. And uh, we were also very, very inventive on ways to pass the time. There was a unit from Georgia next to ours. And for whatever reason, again, just almost an entirely all black unit. Well, we're only about a month into the war. And these guys have already figured out how to make what is called hooch. Okay. This was like this 
foamy wine that they had learned to make out of, I guess, raisins and all this kind of stuff. And they put it in these big two-liter water bottles. I tried it. It had absolutely no effect on me. But I guess if you drank six or seven gallons of this stuff, it might. But there's absolutely no alcohol allowed in, in Saudi Arabia. You couldn't buy it at the PX. And the, the Saudis may have drank it, but they certainly didn't share it with us. And so this is what I mean about it really was an exercise, as it's been this week here, trapped in our homes in Texas. The only thing I've ever feared in my life is boredom. And that's what we fought more than anything else over in Saudi Arabia uh, was boredom. We just tried to find ways to you know, just to pass the time. And the boredom, to be perfectly honest, was, was turning to a little frustration. Uh, I was looking at the picture that Mike sent me. We called that little basketball court. You'll, if you look at it closely, you'll see it says Mr. Robinson's. And I guess we ran out of ink or something because we didn't have the neighborhood p- part there. But we called it Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood. And after a while, the foam Nerf ball just got torn up so bad we couldn't even use it anymore. And before I could get another one, the war is going to be over. We didn't know uh, you know, on, in the mid, mid-February that it was going to be over on the 28th. It's, everything was going to be over on the 28th of February uh, for Valentine's Day that year. Believe it or not, they celebrate Valentine's Day in Saudi Arabia. But uh, there in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, in Eskon Village, I guess it was the USO or whoever puts these things on, put on a little street dance. And, you know, people went over there in their uniforms and their gas masks. And, you know, they had a street dance with the big speakers and things like that. And it was sort of like the Super Bowl. It just had that impact on you. Like, where was I a year before? And it just, you know, the, the, the more they tried to you know, make things more like home, the more you missed it. And I think we were all getting a little homesick by that time. I know I was. And, and we just really just wanted the ground war to start because I was convinced that when the ground war started, it was going to be over so fast. I figured just a few days. I figured no longer than a week. And so in the next episode, I'm going to talk about why I thought that. And it comes down to three letters, NTC. National Training Center, Fort Irwin, California. I had been there. It is like the top gun for the U.S. Army armor without the Tom Cruise sex appeal. I had seen what the M1 Abrams main battle tank could do at night, during the day, during a sandstorm. I was convinced that if I had one M1 Abrams main battle tank, I could take over any third world country with just one of those tanks. And we had hundreds of them over in Desert Storm. And so next time I'm going to talk to you about why I believed and why I was right that we were going to win that war very, very quickly. But in this episode, I just wanted to just think back on on, on the days, you know, I, I feel like when I listen back to some of these episodes, I know it sounds like I'm romanticizing the the experience in the war, which everybody does, because when you look back on it, you only think about the good things. You only think about the fun things, and you forget just how bored, just how bored we all were so much of the time. I was very fortunate to have a friend like Mike Alonzo and John Moya and Sergeant Lopez to play spades with and cards and then basketball 
in the break room there. And so that that was just, I, I thought about it a lot this week because we've been locked down here in Texas with the snow and without electricity a lot of the time and without water. And it just kind of reminded me of what it was like just searching for things to do, getting creative and, you know, cleaning your bunk area 15,000 times. But anyway, next time I'm going to talk to you about the greatest Weapon, I think maybe ever in warfare, a couple of them. Uh, the M1 Ma- Abrams main battle tank, the F-117 stealth fighter, the whole premise of the American military arrayed against this joke of an army, the Iraqi army that the knuckleheads on television were still saying we're going to inflict 30,000 casualties on coalition troops. Um, The reason was we had this thing. We can see you, but you can't see us. We can shoot you when you can't see us. And that is a whole different level of advantage on the modern battlefield and the M1 Abrams main battle tank was just perfectly suited for a desert environment and so we're going to talk about that in greater detail next time on the Thunder and Lightning podcast. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Jason Dias and we'll get out of here again with that Nirvana song. Smells like team spirit. We had a lot of team spirit there at the business end of Operation Desert Storm and what nobody knew is we were about two weeks away from opening a six pack of whoop you know what on the the Iraqi troops and the Republican Guard total clown shows. I, I can't believe it took 100 hours. I, I, it, I never dreamt it would take more than a week or so. So we'll talk about that next time. And until we do, thank you so much for listening. Take care.